they're being in the church today, if, uh, and you want to keep them with you, that's wonderful. We encourage that. And uh, little ones are welcome here. If they get a little squirmy, that's okay. No judgment. If you need to take them out for a little bit and then come back, that's okay too. Uh, so just know that, uh, at least from my vantage point, if I see you getting up with a kid, I understand. All right? I've got seven of them. So uh, I get it. Okay. Let me ask you a question. What is the image you get in your mind when you think of a heroic leader? If you were raised on Westerns, maybe it's someone like John Wayne. Or maybe someone like Indiana Jones or William Wallace. Today, the entertainment industry is flooded with no shortage of superhero movies, as I'm sure you're well aware. Maybe you have in mind someone like Captain America or Thor. When I was a kid, I loved to draw pictures of superheroes. One common denominator is that they all had bulging muscles, right? In fact, kids who are here, if you want, take the back of a piece of paper. You can draw, draw your ideal superhero uh, while you're listening. Let's be honest, most of you are probably not picturing a short, bald, pudgy, middle-aged Prince Charming who comes panting and wheezing to the rescue, right? We have an image in our mind of what a hero looks like. And these images we have of our ideal heroes typically reflect the kind of leaders we think we need and the kind of leaders that we wish we had. Someone who will stand up to tyranny and evil and drive out the bad guys. A strong leader has got to be powerful. But what if the kind of leader you want and the kind of leader that you think you need is not the kind of leader we actually need? So what kind of leader do we need? This is the question that today's text will answer for us. So let's get there now. Please turn with me to John chapter 12. We're starting verse 12, read through verse 19. If you need to use a pew Bible, you're welcome to. Uh, You'll find today's text on page 1068 in our pew Bibles. And once you're there, if you're able, please stand with me out of reverence for God's word and follow along with me as I read. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of God. Father, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that the sacred writings of which he'd been acquainted with from his youth were able to make him wise for salvation. Holy Spirit, work now in our midst through the proclamation of these sacred writings to be made wise, to know your salvation that is only through Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Just like we have fashioned a picture of our ideal heroes, the Jews living at the time of Jesus had a picture of what their ideal Messiah would be like. It would rival any hero that Disney could come up with. Tall, dark, handsome, riding a white war stallion, ready to lead the armies of Israel to conquer the tyranny of Rome. This is what they wanted. This is what they thought they most needed. This is what they hoped and longed for. And the people begin to wonder if Jesus could be this Messiah that they longed for, especially as he's going around raising people from the dead. Imagine this scene with me. It's, it's Passover, a feast that drew multitudes to Jerusalem. One first century census listed the number of lambs sacrificed one year at a Passover. And estimating the number of people that would feed one lamb, there were likely around 2,700,000 people in Jerusalem at that time for the celebration of the Passover. Now, by comparison, I Googled this. I learned that last year's Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade had about 3 million spectators. So this crowd was comparable in size, but certainly more electric in fervor as they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. In chapter eleven fifty five, John tells us that many went up to Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover and they were, they were looking for Jesus. In 12.9, John says that when a large crowd learned that Jesus was at the meal in Bethany with Lazarus and his sisters, they came to him there. Crowds are forming. And then look at verse 17. There was a crowd of people who had witnessed publicly Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they continue to talk up this, this miracle with others. I mean, wouldn't you? Word is spreading. The buzz is, is growing about Jesus. And this crowd was likely part of that large crowd that already came to see Jesus in Bethany. Now, word gets out to Jerusalem that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Remember, they were wondering, is he going to show up? Because there's a death warrant out for his arrest. Right? The, the religious leaders want him arrested and put to death. Is he going to come? Well, they hear he's coming, he's coming. So Jesus is coming with a large crowd of people. Now there's another large crowd we see in verse 12 that goes out to meet him from Jerusalem. So picture these two massive crowds coming together, converging on Jesus like two massive waves crashing together. Now notice the description of this event by the Pharisees in verse 19. Look, the whole world 
has gone after him. Millions of people, perhaps, this massive crowd flocking to Jesus. Verse 13 says, They took palm branches and waved them and went to meet them as they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is a quote from Psalm 118. It's the last psalm in a group of psalms known as the Hallel, which means praise God. The word Hosanna literally means save now. This is a psalm for a conqueror. In fact, these were the very verses that the Jews shouted a century, a century earlier when Judas Maccabeus victoriously drove out the Greeks. They waved palm branches and, and shouted the words of Psalm 118. And interestingly enough, they also waved palm branches then too. Palm branches were something of a national symbol for Israel over the years. And this was their form of, of a ticker tape parade. And the imagery was unmistakable. They were expecting a conquering king. No doubt there was anticipation that at any moment a trumpet would blast and a call to arms would be given and they would finally have their military victory over Rome. Now imagine how Jesus must have felt as he approached Jerusalem, surrounded by mass hysteria, shouting and hailing him as a conqueror. This had to be painful because they were looking for him to be the very thing he refused to be. For certain, Jesus was a king, but not the kind of king the people were expecting. Not the king of their dreams. And in the midst of this, Jesus does something shocking. But everyone misses it. I mean, it's easy in a crowd like that to get just caught up in, in, in the crowd. And they just, they miss this completely. He takes and rides a young donkey into the city. Now, if he had taken a large white stallion, it would have been all over. I mean, the imagery would have been complete. The people would have lost their minds and just maybe taken up arms right then and there without any command to do so. But he didn't. He rode a donkey. And in verse 15, John connects these events to Zechariah 9.9. And then in verse 16, he notes that this connection went right over their heads. The disciples missed it. The crowd missed it. They did not understand this connection until after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was making a statement, though, about the kind of king he came to be. He came to be the kind of king in Zechariah 9.9, and nobody expected this. So for the rest of our time, I want to drill down into Zechariah 9 and its context. I want to show you three ways that Jesus was not the king they expected, but was the king they needed. So before we jump into these three ways, let me read to you Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So three ways. Jesus is not the king they expected, but was the king that they needed. The first one is he was a king to end war, not make it. First notice that Jesus is riding a donkey in verse 14, and by doing this, Jesus isn't saying that he's not a king. That's not what riding a donkey symbolized. The fact is that a donkey was considered a royal animal in Israel. It's just that kings who rode a donkey did so when they came in peace. However, the people were expecting the Messiah to be riding a white war horse with sword in hand, and instead Jesus comes in peace riding a donkey. Zechariah 9.10 says that the king will cut off the instruments of war from his people. Jesus would usher in his kingdom not with an arms race, but by laying down weapons of war. Next, notice the Jews. They cry out, Hosanna! Save us! But again, they were only thinking about political freedom. Their biggest problem, in their view, of the world was Rome. Rome is who they wanted salvation from. In Zechariah 9.9, it says the king will come bringing salvation. But Jesus knew there was an enemy far greater than Rome that the people had no clue about because they were too short-sighted. Jesus came as a king to do battle but against an enemy far greater than the Jews could ever have imagined, Jesus came to conquer sin and death itself. We see the key to this victory right here in verse 9. Righteousness and humility. Riding on a donkey. That's how he will conquer sin and death. Now, if the people really understood that their greatest enemy, sin, lived in the core of every human heart, including their own, then this is the kind of king they would have hoped for. Because if Jesus had come to conquer sin with a war horse and sword, no one would stand a chance. We'd all be struck down by the just wrath of God poured out on sin. There's not a single person who isn't completely corrupted by sin and is an enemy of God. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sin is a problem for all of humanity. And again, in in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It wasn't the Romans that needed to be dethroned. You see, there's a throne on the heart of every human being. And in your sin, you've made yourself king. And you sit on that throne in your heart. And you will defend your throne at all costs. 
There's only one problem, though. And it's this, that you are not the rightful heir to the throne of your heart. It belongs to the king of kings. Our true enemy is not out there. Our true enemy is in our own hearts. And that's the enemy Christ came to deal with. We need to be reminded of this so often. If we, if we watch enough of the news, we can become so easily convinced that our greatest problems are outside of ourselves. There are other people who don't think like we do. Our problems are political and social. We think that we need to fight back with political and social weapons, with protests and boycotts and smear campaigns, a stinging tweet or a witty piece of rhetoric. The Apostle Paul hit this nail right on the head when he reminded the Ephesian church, chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These spiritual forces, they're against you. They are your enemy. They want to prop you up on your throne, the throne of your heart. They want to convince and persuade you that you are the rightful heir to your heart and to be pulled into their siren song is to only be led to your own destruction. To fight back, Paul goes on. Paul doesn't instruct them to take up arms, but to put on the whole armor of God and to pray at all times, being watchful, persevering, boldly proclaiming the gospel. This is the strategy of our king, humility and righteousness. You notice how this aligns with Zechariah 9.13. He says, this is the Lord, for I have bent Judah as my bow. Remember, he's already cut off all the instruments of war in the land. But now he's saying, Judah is my bow, Ephraim is my arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The king will cut off all the instruments of war in verse 10, but in verse 13, the king makes his people weapons in his hands through righteousness and humility. He will bend you as a bow and wield you like a warrior's sword, not against flesh and blood, but against the oppression of sin in your own heart. Jesus is a conquering king, but his victory is not political. And neither is our hope as Christians. By all means, be a good steward of your vote when we have elections. Be wise in selecting leaders, but do so without anxiety or fear. Jesus isn't on the ballot. The king of kings is not an elected position, and our hope will never be in Washington, D.C. Our hope is sitting on a throne in heaven and hopefully on the throne of your hearts. So Jesus made a bold statement by riding a donkey that he was not the king people were expecting. 
He came not to be a political king to make war against Rome, but came in humility and righteousness to wage war against sin and death. Now let's consider a second way that Jesus is an unexpected king. He's a king to draw the nations, not drive them away. Notice that Zechariah 9.10 says that the king will speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. The Jews could only see themselves as God's people, though. And the Messiah's kingdom would be a Jews-only kingdom. So in their minds, salvation would come by driving out the nations. But Jesus is a king who came to draw the nations in. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament. And the people, again, they just missed it. God's promise to Abraham was that he would bless the nations through his offspring. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This means that salvation, the salvation that this king will bring is not a Jewish salvation, but a salvation for all the nations of the earth. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah puts this in 49, verse 6. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for all people to the ends of the earth. So the expectation of the Jews was for a Jewish king to drive away the nations, but Jesus came as a king to draw them in and give them salvation too. This too, even to the ends of the earth. We see foreshadowing of this already beginning to take place in verse 19 We hear the Pharisees speak better than they knew when they said the whole world is gathering is going after him. And in John nineteen, or sorry, John twelve, twenty and twenty one, we see that Greeks who were in Jerusalem were beginning to seek Jesus. And this is what drives our commitment as a church to global missions. We have a passion to see people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations find salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the the God or the king or, or he doesn't just bring salvation to Dutchess County or to Fishkill or to America. It's to the ends of the earth. A word of caution here. Too often, We limit missions to an event. We go on mission trips. They begin and they end. Or we see missions narrowly as an occupation. We support missionaries. And these are both good things. And I'm for them. I think Jesus is for them too. But missions is bigger than this. It's an adjective that should describe the life of every believer. We are all called to daily missional living. 
Every moment of your life is a missions trip. Jesus' entire life was a missions trip who came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus is our model missionary. In John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We're all missionaries. No matter where you are. Sending doesn't mean you need to move overseas or learn a new language. Consider this, the neighborhood where you live, the place where you work, the school that you attend, the sports team that you play on, the friend group that you're in. Jesus has sent you there because he wants to use you to bring the gospel to people in those places that they may be drawn into the kingdom of God. And consider this, that you were sent there for such a time as this, that you are the best person to reach those people. Cross-cultural, global missions should be an overflow of our own daily mission in the neighborhoods and workplaces, schools, and the relationships that God has given us. And may the heart of missions in this church be to go wherever we can go, and to send others where we can't. And pray that the God that God will, will bear fruit in both places. Jesus was an unexpected king because he didn't, he didn't come to drive out the nations, but to draw them in. Now, a third way that Jesus is an unexpected king. He's a king who came to give blood, not take it. Remember, These events are taking place during the Passover celebration. And the people misunderstood the connection. I think in their minds they were making a connection, but it wasn't the right one. The Passover was a reminder of when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. So, in the minds of many of the Jews, there must have been this thought, God delivered us from slavery in Egypt. And so now, he's sending us a king to deliver us from Rome. You see the connection there? You see how easy that is to make? But Jesus did not come on a war horse and with sword in hand. He didn't come to spill the blood of Romans as a conqueror. He came to humbly give his own blood to set us free from sin and death. Zechariah 9.11 explains this. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. In righteousness and in humility, Jesus came as a king who would lay down his life on the cross and whose blood would set us free from sin and death. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew's gospel talking about the Lord's Supper, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus sees these events and their connection to the Passover in an entirely different way. One that was completely unexpected. Remember the first Passover. God commanded the people to kill a lamb without blemish. 
a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. And they were to spread the, door, the, the blood of this lamb on their door frames. And when the angel of destruction came that night to take the lives of the firstborn in the land, it passed over any home with blood, the blood of the lamb on it. That's where the word Passover comes from. The angel of destruction passed over any home that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Now here's the connection to Jesus. Jesus is a king who came in righteousness so that he could be our perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb. He was perfect. He came in humility to lay down his life so that his blood would cover us. And now when the final judgment comes, if Jesus' blood covers us by faith, God's final judgment on sin will pass over us. Amen. So Jesus came as the humble king of righteousness to give his blood to set us free. But the Jews weren't all wrong. The king they longed for would come as a conquering warrior. But not yet. Not yet. He would come first as the righteous and humble lamb. And he will come a second time, though. But when he comes again, he will come as a conquering king in judgment. We see this picture in Revelation that Jesus is both the risen lamb that was slain in weakness and the conquering lion of Judah. He's both. He's both. But the king who comes first as the lamb to conquer our sin by shedding his own blood and rising again, that we would be covered and forgiven. And he will return once more, but this time as a lion to conquer all evil, but will pass over those covered by the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, John has a vision of King Jesus. He comes again, but this time he isn't riding a donkey. He will be on that white horse, riding with the armies of heaven, with a sword in his mouth, with which to strike down all those who refuse to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. In Isaiah 55, 12, describes the victory parade. After all evil has been vanquished and perfect peace has been secured forever, Isaiah 55, 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. There's the palms. There's waving palms. But now they're still attached to the trees, and they're waving on their own. What a victory parade. That'll rival anything we could ever imagine. And the big question is, the big question is today, for everyone here, is will you be ready for King Jesus when he comes again? Will he pass over you? Or will he conquer you? All this depends on how you respond to Jesus, the humble and righteous Lamb. You must surrender to Jesus, the Lamb. 
Give up the claim that you have to the throne of your heart and let him ride into your life as your humble and righteous king. Ask for his forgiveness, trusting his blood as payment to cover your sin. And the Apostle Paul assures us with these words in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone without distinction. Everyone without discrimination. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every social class, the worst of sinners and the most self-righteously deceived. Call on Jesus today. Give him your heart. Receive him as your king and be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are everything we need. And so often, you are unexpected that a king would come in weakness and with humility and righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you came first not to conquer, but to lay down your life pour out your own blood as payment for our sin, for the sins of the world, that we can be ready when you come again to finally and forever vanquish this world of all sin and evil and injustice. Every wrong will be made right and paid for. It'll either be paid for by the blood of the Lamb or will be paid for by the blood of those who have refused to bend the knee to King Jesus. God, I pray that should there be any here this morning who've yet to bend the knee to King Jesus and give up the claims they have to the throne on their hearts, that they would surrender this morning. Give their lives to you, Jesus, and receive the forgiveness that you freely give to all who call on you. And God, may we be bold as pilgrims in this world to share this good news with others, that they too may be ready for King Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.